0: This is Negotiate X podcast, show number 71, part A. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the NegotiateX X podcast. I am your co-host, co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me, as always, co-host, co-founder, Aram Dinesian. Aram, do you want to kick the episode off for today?
1: I will. Thanks, Nolan. Hey, folks. Last fall, I was finishing teaching and reading through final project presentation papers. And as I was taking a break from reading these papers and thinking about how my students write and communicate through written word, I came across this article on LinkedIn. It was a CNBC article about how important written communications are to our ability to influence. I just loved it. And so I looked at the author and I I said, I got to look up this person you know, who is she? Found out she's pretty amazing and that we could learn a lot from her, not just about written communications, but some other things that she does in her professional career. I said, I got to get her to come on. And so this show's been like six, nine months in the making. And really excited to welcome Juliette Hahn to our program. Juliette is the chief financial officer and chief operating officer at Cambrian Bio. Uh, Hahn was previously the chief of staff at Two Sigma Private Investments Group, the private investments division of the hedge fund Two Sigma. Prior to Two Sigma, Han was a chief operating officer of People Human Resources Operations at hedge fund Citadel, where she led strategic thinking behind performance and teams. Prior to Citadel, Han was chief of staff for McKinsey New Ventures at McKinsey & Company and had a strategy and commercialization consultant in the New York office's pharmaceutical practice. Han holds a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University, as well as an MS in physiological sciences and a BS in neuroscience and physiological science, both from UCLA. She serves on the Alumni Advisory Council of Harvard Medical School, Division of Medical Sciences, and an academic advisor. She is also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Juliet, thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
1: Well, we're so excited to have you too. That's a pretty incredible bio. It's like you're mining and like, this is a great article. Mine, you find out like, wow, this author is just incredible. We know you're busy. So, you know, before we get into really any questions, you know, what else could you tell us about your background and your own journal journey and story that might be important for our listeners to kind of understand kind of the context for kind of having you on today and and the things that have influenced your thinking?
2: I do think that much of my professional journey has been shaped by my academic journey as well. So when you come out of academia and some people later or earlier than others, for me, it was after about 11 years of bench science and coming into the professional world, you're not also given the same understanding as you're given when you're 22 and just out of college. So there is a lot of catching up to do at the same time you do enter a different type of maturity. So I would say a lot of self-growth and self-reflection comes from a lot of that experience.
1: Yeah, it's that combination of education, reflection, so study, time, uh, and then experience, right? And being able to put a lot of things in the practice. And yeah, we're going to dig into all your practices. So,
2: absolutely great.
0: <laughs> so, Juliet, I was hoping you could share a little bit about Cambrian and what you do on a daily basis as the CFO, COO, and how negotiation skills, especially around influence and persuasion, show up in your work in your business.
2: Absolutely. You know, I love this question. You guys are negotiation experts, and I know you had amazing guests on here. The way I think about it is that when I used to think about negotiations, I used to think of it as a very transactional, in time, very defined thing. But now the way I look at it is every conversation is a negotiation, including the conversation you have in your own head with yourself. So how I like to think about it is perhaps explicit versus implicit negotiations I'll say that's the best way I think about Mm -hmm. how I approach my job. So first, my remit as to what I do on day to day, that's a great question. I cover what you would expect of a CFO, COO, like corporate functions, including HR, communications, legal aspects of finance. And um, I also work closely with the other departments, especially given my science background. Science is ultimately a language and doctrine of thought. So I'm able to work closely with our R&D team. We do have sourcing and business development teams. So those are teams I work closely with cross-functionally as well. And even if they don't report to me. So how I like to think about every communication I have with my teams or people not on my teams is that of influence. And you want them to do things in a way that rows in the same direction. So if you're just ordering people to do something because you have the authority to do that, fine, you might get something tactical done. But really, if you approach someone with a negotiation mindset of influencing them to row in the same direction, I promise you they will look out for icebergs themselves and row in a better direction than you even thought of. And one thing I do wanna also point out is that There are people who are very vocal in organizations, and you know exactly what they want, exactly what they think and what their incentives are. But sometimes, especially whether it be because they're of lower ranks or they're timid or they're introverted, like myself, it's important for you to reach out and understand those people's mindsets. and Those may be the people that you want to think about incorporating in your thinking. And if you do that, I do think that helps you build a reputation of a fair and just leader. And ultimately, that's the reputation that you want when you approach a negotiation of someone saying this is a fair person and a reasonable person instead of someone getting extremely defensive.
1: There was a lot in that answer in terms of uh, the power of influence and the importance of, you know, understanding others' mindsets, thinking about who you pull into a conversation who may not be getting pulled in right now. The idea of a reputation being fair and just as a leader. Pretty pretty critical stuff there. The one thing that jumped out to me, I know we're going to get to this a little bit. You said you're an introvert, which is hard to believe, uh, but we understand these things are on kind of on a, they're on a spectrum, right? So we'll, we'll talk more about introversion in just in, in a little bit. Let, let's go take if you could just get a little more granular for a moment. You talked about the different, Places negotiation influence show up for you both internally around some of the corporate functions, certainly with R and D and business development. I assume there may be other external negotiations with supply chain and others partners you're working on with research or so forth. What do you find most challenging about the negotiations that you are in, whether they are kind of the big? negotiation that's very explicit that everybody's prepping for and you know or it's the more day-to-day you know maybe what you call calling more implicit sort of negotiations. what are the most challenging for those
2: yeah so i want to outline perhaps externally especially three types of negotiations i see day-to-day and then the difference in how they're difficult and what i'm trying to achieve with each of them so first type of negotiations we often do is with universities and transfer offices and scientists and I'll go into what that means and specificity around that. The second type I think about is transactions with big pharma companies. So we are a smaller company, but there are definitely uh, synergies and partnerships to be had with big pharma companies. And then the third is perhaps the more vendor-like contract research organizations, CROs that are very common in the industry. So the first one with the universities I don't want to call them a difficulty. I like to call them fun challenges <laughs> is when you're speaking to a scientist who've worked on a technology for 20, 30, 40 years, they're coming from a fundamentally different place than a partner who's just looking for what's the best bang for my buck. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the goal that you want to achieve is not paying them right away. We're saying, look, let's take a risk on this amazing technology you've been working on and let's try to develop it into a drug. And because it's a high-risk science, you really need to be aligned on the long-term vision. So often in negotiations, in what we think about negotiations, the outcomes are immediate and obvious. But in these type of negotiation with the scientists, you're saying, look, what does the next 10 years look like, the outcome of this potentially in this high-risk endeavor? And do we see the same way? And if you're dealing with someone who has been working on this beautifully for 30 years, how do you get them Mm -hmm. to see that vision with you? Mm -hmm. I would say that that's pretty tough. And of course you have the university intermediaries for whom it's a revenue generator. So they do have a money making mindset as they should, that's how universities fund their research. So I would say that that's a tripod of a challenge that we carefully negotiate and then coming from a scientist background, I feel a lot for the, these scientists and I think that scientists need to be paid fairly. So I think building a reputation of fairness is absolutely critical here. The second one is with the big pharma and potential partnerships with the big players in your industry. So that one you have to be long-term minded. So there you might feel like the small shrimp in the sea and they're the big whale. At the same time, you can't nickel and dime because you also want to build the long-term partnership mindset with them. And instead of just getting the deal done, you have to be very mindful about the contracts and what contract I sign today may have repercussions on the future. So that one is where you're not just thinking about the contracts as written today, but as you know, a lot of drugs switch hands between these companies. So how does my transaction impact the secondary and tertiary outcomes of that transaction and being a really ultimate chess player in that scenario? I would say that is the biggest fun challenge for that. The ones with the vendors and CROs, I often think that because you're the paying party, people treat these vendors and CROs pretty badly. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely disagree with that approach. Especially when you are a small player, they have much bigger contracts that they can optimize for. And in science, when they don't optimize for you because you're small, that's a matter of 12 months even or 24 months of being in waiting and queue to be processed. So how do you help them see you as someone who matter? I think that's the fun challenge with these contract organizations. That's
1: fantastic. The the big picture view that you're painting on all three of those externally facing negotiations um, just really s- strikes with me. Um, again, you kind of you know this piece about the, the reputation, but but the big perspective, second and third order effects. Does it ever get difficult with kind of as you negotiate externally and you think about second and third order effects of decisions you're going to make? On, on they then bring that back in internally and have the internal alignment conversation about what we need to do with any one of those like kind of three partnerships?
2: Yes, because your internal stakeholders who are not on the front lines may not see the the conversations that are happening live. And and it's just like any other conversation. If you weren't there, you don't know. Right. Uh, so it's hard to boil down a lot of the human sentiments and aspects of the conversations into a bullet form. And they'll say, well, why didn't you just push for this? So I do think that we end up on the back end, if you happen to be on the back end, I think that you have to be much more understanding of the limitations uh, in the room as of what's happening in that moment. So I think that often what is most important before you go into negotiations, if you have a team that's waiting for the answer, is to align them around the principles. Mm -hmm. I think often people go in and say, look, I'm going to try to get these numbers and this number. And then that's, we're going to call that a win. I think a way better way to align your team is to say, look, here's a range of what we can do, but really principally what we want is for this player to see us this way without us losing something um, that we can't give away. I think that's a way better way to align your team to work in a more productive manner.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that that resonates well with with, with our thinking and, and, and the work we've done both military and corporately. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Uh, thank you for that. So I know uh, Aaron mentioned that last fall, you you released an Instagram video that that talked about written communication and is picked up by CNPC. Congratulations for that. Why do you believe that so strongly in the importance of mastering written communication and what do you see as the keys of effective writing in general?
2: Especially with ChatGPT. Some people mm-hmm. wonder if written communication will be, be any more that skills will be any more important. And I think if anything, it will be even more important. And here's a couple of reasons why and what that means to answer your question. So one is you can't pause and ask ChatGPT to write a quick text or email every single time. I think Microsoft is working on that to integrate that type of language into that, but we can already see that it doesn't have your voice or style yet. And even if he can adopt that, I'm not sure if he has the nuances of your relationship with this particular person, Hmm. all the knowledge you have of other types of interactions you have with this person outside of that email thread. And then number two is that really, as much as there's standardization with ChatGPT around some of the writing that gets put out there, I think a very stylized personal writing now becomes high in pursuit. It's kind of like how restaurant industry, sure, the first time we had the mass production of food, it made it more available to others, but that made, if anything, high-end dining even more desirable because that's something you can't pursue. So I want everyone to see writing skills that way. When something becomes commonplace, when you're good at it, it becomes even more Mm. desirable. Now, having said that, the reason why I think written communication is so important is that it actually makes your verbal communication even better. People who write well can also speak well. And what writing does is it forces you to be succinct and commit to those words. In speaking, as a, even now, I can say a few words that I don't necessarily need. I don't have to use the right. perfect diction. But if I were to write this out as an article, I would probably have to commit to every sentence structure. So it forces you to practice that doctrine of double checking facts, making sure the sentiments are clear and the nuances in which the verbal communications does not. So effective writing delivers the crisp messages without evoking unwanted emotions and reactions. And it helps build relationships. So there are different types of struggles when people write. And I've seen across different um, career transformations I had. So, for instance, in academia, uh, we write in very esoteric language. So we have all the scientific research that no one outside of science really knows. Um, And it's all about how smart you can sound and how much facts you can throw out there and not a lot about narrative and the audience. Now, it has a lot of data, but as you can see, it lacks direction or overarching so what. Now, there's an opposite issue in the corporate writing that lacks crispness. You know, we hear we talk about jargon and it lacks commitment to ideas, and sometimes it doesn't even have the right facts. So I do think that if you are aware of these differences, so I became astutely aware of these differences when I made a transformation and how I had to really evolve the way I think and write. So I would love for everyone to really critically reflect on your writing skills and what has been required of you and whether that is the the style is the best way forward in your environment.
1: And you said was there an instance that you were just referencing that kind of really brought this attention for you to like for you personally was there something that that happened? I,
2: that's a that's a really great question. Let me tell you something that I I there's a lot of moments actually when <laughs> I came out of academia that was like It just demonstrated for me what an ostrich in the head in the sand I was. But there was this moment I left academia and I was at McKinsey. It was one of my first projects, maybe a couple months in. I was working with this phenomenal manager and they asked me to put together this analysis, by the way. And this is why McKinsey likes to hire former academics, because we're very thorough and we're not daunted by, you know, hundreds of pages of facts um, to put together. So I was running this data analysis and. I was taking a while and I showed my manager this data and it had error bars. So these graphs and I was like, well, here's a thousand data points. I did this fancy analysis on with this error bars. And she looked at me and she said, what are these little things? And I said, these are error bars. It shows you confidence interval. And she's like, yeah, we don't do that here. <laughs> and I don't need N equals thousand. Like we just need to know enough to make decisions and the management decides the confidence interval Mm. and which is absolutely true right the management is to say hey here's some data i don't need all that much because i don't have time to wait for analysis to be done in two weeks and i'm going to build conviction around how much i believe in this data is going to happen again so for me that was a huge aha moment Mm. at first i was like i can't believe if I put forward any analysis that has no error bars in academia, I'll be like thrown out of the window immediately. So it made me realize what a difference there is in terms of how people build conviction around their hypothesis. Thanks for
1: that. You discussed writing decisive emails in your article. This is so relevant as so many negotiations or other conversations these days happen over email. Could you describe how a decisive email? differs from how we typically write emails? Are they more direct? Do they have more influence somehow? How did they actually look
2: different? Yes. Uh, Very great question. I want everyone to think of every email in some ways as decisive emails, because ultimately, what are you communicating if you're not driving towards some decision? Even if you're uh, communicating with your friends where to go to dinner. So when we say someone is decisive, we immediately think of that means it's direct and I'm gonna communicate to you exactly the answer I want. It could not be further from the approach. Hmm. The decisive emails to me means that you are driving someone to make the decision that you agree with. So what does that mean? If you just tell someone, let's do this, the likelihood of them saying, yeah, let's do that is pretty low. So decisions aren't just yes and no. So you need to align people to the same context, give consideration or acknowledgement of their stance and bring people along to the decision. So you're painting the world for them in which your decision just makes the best sense. So most emails, when we think of I'm going to drive towards a decision, it's all about my stance, my decision and what's in it for me. And that's not decisive. It drives people away from that decision. So you need to write an email that it really has context and don't falsely assume that delivering a finite message equals decisiveness.
1: Yeah, I think that's a trap, right? That message sent equals message received. But if you don't establish context, if you don't put it in a place where it's going to be received by the reader um, with where they are, you you miss the boat. I'm going to guess you've had experience maybe writing the wrong email. Have you ever written one that you wish you had back, but maybe you shouldn't have sent it or just could have been better. Um, yeah. Any thoughts there? So
2: look, I have regrets all the time when <laughs> I send that email. I'm like, Oh, I wonder if I should have said it this way. Um, I do think uh, over time that made me a better writer. Now, having said that there's a couple of things that I do now that I know wasn't best practice for me when I had those regrets. I have those regrets when I, write back too quickly on something that wasn't urgent. So I'm so excited to get my thoughts and my message out there that I didn't do enough of not just proofreading, but thinking more deeply and broadly. Mm. So what I do now is I have a draft going immediately just to get the thought started and then go on about my day. And often these emails aren't that urgent unless they really are and come back and add things in or take even more important, take some stuff out. Right. So I would really uh, espouse for taking the time to write something and not just staring at it, but just walk away and coming back and adding things. By the way, the times that I think people, myself included, regret writing the email the most is because maybe it shouldn't have been an email. Hmm. And in fact, the first step to writing a great email is to decide whether it should be an email at all. I think we get so comfortable with emails or texts that all of us, many of us actually, some of us are not, are a little bit allergic after, especially after the last few years on human interaction, including Zoom or Slack or just calling. Now the phone rings and you're like, well, I don't even know my phone was on in the last 10 years. So I do think that um, even if you are to write an email and want to put something in writing, Some of these things go down so much better when you just call someone and deliver a message first and just hear their reaction and just let them down softly versus they're guessing at what your intentions are. And email comes across honestly a little inhumane, no matter how warmly you put it, no matter how you sign off with it. So I do think that before you write that email, the first question is, should I call this person first? And I don't think we do that enough. And that brings the humanity into mm. relationships.
1: Do you have other guidelines? I love this, this this idea that my first step to writing a good email is asking whether I should do it at all. Do you have guidelines as you choose modality? And, you, and you're right, we're living in a crazy time, right? There's so many options when it comes to we could do this by Zoom or some other form of like, you know, Teams or virtual, whatever. We can do this by email. We can do this over text, phone call. We could try to meet in person. There's just so many more forms of like modalities. Do you have guidelines that go through your thinking about this relationship, this issue, this topic, whatever, this drives the modality that we need to have this conversation? I
2: think so. Absolutely. So I think if anything, farther you are from where you need to get to, more closer in physicality you need to be. I would say that's a really good framework. Hmm. So farther in stance or relationship you are and more uncomfortable you feel with this person more human, you need to make it. Now, traveling isn't an option for a lot of people, and it could be on Zoom. So, I highly encourage everyone to start off on Zoom. The m- more uncomfortable you feel on Zoom, so what you're, uh, what you have allergic reactions to, I would say <laughs> is probably what you should do.
1: <laughs> it's
2: Probably a good framework, and I think that people end up relying on emails to deliver an uncomfortable message because they feel fearful of the human interaction that is precisely the moment you should deliver it in person. Yeah.
0: Thank you. That's great. Definitely want to make a chart that kind of describes that because I think that that's going to be very useful as a framework to think through when and when not to email. Um, so thanks for that. So you also talk about creating powerful presentations. We know there may be a number of reasons to create a presentation, provide an update to key stakeholders, ask a decision on a proposal, request more resources for a project, and so on. What is it that makes a presentation powerful? Why is it so critical to get it right from an influence perspective? And what attention should be given to who the audience is going to be when preparing a presentation?
2: Mm. So first of all, I think a presentation document, I want to just clarify. There's presentation in terms of presentation document. And then there's an actual presentation of a document. I think those are different. So for example, you might be asked to put together a presentation because it will be read or be sent as a pre-read versus presenting something. So I wanna first get everyone to clarify what you're being asked to do. Cause I think one of the mistakes people make is assumption around those two things being the same. Two things could not be more different things that need to be read. And a lot of documents actually is very beautiful on a slide, even if they're read, just because you have a lot of illustrations and graphics and have a lot of explanations. So those are presentation style that you can think about leveraging in addition to Word document um, and other types. So that is very different from a presentation you give. Now, having said that, I think there's some dogmas that stay consistent across those two formats. Number one, and you're going to hear this anyone you ask, is number one is to understand the audience. Now, I think people do a surface level research of the audience, say, okay, well, I'm going to have an audience of people around this tenure, and there's going to be about 30 of them, and this is going to be a Q&A session, so it's informal. I want you to go many layers deeper. I want you to think through about context that they have. What is the world in which it is formed in their heads and you're just stepping into it? It's not your world that they're stepping into. It's their world that that you're stepping into. Number two is their biases. Do they have informed decisions on this topic or do they not have informed decisions? And what is their incentives? And then only then, once you understand all of that deeply, you can ask, what do you want them to take away? What do you want the audience to do? Because we get so engrossed in what we want to say, we don't think enough about who the listener is. And often the work, at work, the, n- the need is more heightened because if you have an audience that disagrees or feel like you're attacking them, even if you aren't, because you're embarrassing them about some performance aspects, The last thing you want to do is embarrass anybody that's gonna turn away from what you're trying to say. So pre-work, including preparation of doing this deep research, as well as syndication, meaning that you pre-share the presentation with people who may feel sensitive, who may react badly. I would say those are more important, if not just as, but if more important than the presentation itself. I think people gear up towards that, 45 minutes of fame that they're going to have presenting something, but then the days and weeks and hours that you need to put in to prep the audience is just as important.
1: I don't think we think about that idea of prepping the audience nearly enough. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly stepping into their, their shoes. Have you ever had a really important presentation? Can you share an example of one? I'm sure you've had one or two. (laughs) Um, that you thought just went really well and why was it so successful
2: so i do give a lot of presentations whether it be board presentations to my team but i want to highlight one this one was particularly different i would say so some time ago i had to give a presentation where i had zero skin in the game so I, Hmm. i i wasn't a player in this decision making and essentially the background without um Uh, divulging too much was that there were a group of investors that wanted to enter a particular area of science. And they weren't sure and they wanted to understand whether there's compelling enough structure and hypotheses to pursue this field. Now, I say I have no skin in the game in that I have no direct incentive. They weren't investing into me. I'm not getting any of their dollars and they're just forming their own thing. But the the reason why I was excited to do this is because I believe that more money should be going into science. So the more I can get investors comfortable with the way um, an investment could be structured, I think that's better outcome for everybody, all of us. So it was to explain some complicated aspects. So scientifically complicated to non-scientists, as well as business-wide, somewhat complicated to how do I think about structuring different investment types into uh, this particular area of science and i really got a couple of touch points before i gave this presentation and i was told i have to stay strictly in 45 minute time limit so i really thought about this deeply actually for weeks because you have a very sophisticated audience Mm -hmm. with zero sophistication in science and that needs to be really moved in a big way by this presentation and help them make this decision so What I ended up doing is that I had both elements in my slides, which was uh, some complex information that really should be read. Um, And then there was some simple stuff that was more graphical. But what I ended up doing was I passed around pages of this complex stuff. And I told them and said, I want you to listen to me right now because this stuff you can take as post-read. What I'm going to do for you, though, in the next, 45 minutes is to hear your concerns about this area, set up the context in which you can go and understand this complex stuff and technical stuff you put in there. And I just wanna have a dialogue with you why this is so important. And I really set it up as like, this is going to be a context setting for us. And it was great because I really got to hear their concerns and got to shape the narrative as to how they can now contextualize the complex stuff that they're going to take home and read. Because their understanding of that really, those are just facts and figures. And what I needed to do was create a world with them Mm -hmm. that day. So that when they go read the complex stuff, they'll be like, this is worth it. Doing this complex stuff is worth it. right?" And I feel like she really heard out our concern. So for me, that presentation took a lot of uh, mindful strategy, and it took a lot of also physicality and comfort mattered. Also, I think people don't think about the physicality enough. You can hide behind a podium. You can be far from the audience. Those are all different tactics you can think about. How much do you gesticulate? Do you start with the story? So I do think that these are important aspects to bring your audience with you on what you want them to do.
0: Hey, everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of the show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.